It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I know some people uh, can be frustrated with my overview messages, you know, when it was like, get into the story. Technically, I'm getting into the story, right? It's, it's, it's very challenging to know when to start a story when you're dealing with something like a world war uh, because there are so many things that have happened for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and technically I could go back to a tree in the Garden of Eden, and that would help you better understand World War I. Does that make sense? And I was, where do you start the story? And so how do you show the makeup of what causes a war, the mechanics that go into something like that? For those of you that have studied World War I, you're going to know that the typical thing blamed for starting the war is a gunshot. Uh, a single, well, technically there were two bullets uh, that were fired uh, and they killed two people. I mean, a pretty good shot, right? Uh, and yet, what is actually going to cause the war is a lot more complex than that. And so, though that is not incorrect, uh, probably on Monday I'm going to be talking about those bullets, uh, but what is going to underpin uh, this is a lot of national feuds uh, over the centuries, over the uh, millennia even, you could say. I mean, we have nations that are long-standing enemies, and they're right next to each other. They're neighbors. Europe has always sort of been a powder keg. And so you have Great Britain, who's a key player in this, and right across the English Channel is a nation called France. And those two have always very much disliked one another, okay? And so, and that's part of the, almost, it's like a humor amongst them. And so, uh, is the fact that they sneer at one another, they despise one another. And that's been an ongoing thing for generations. But then you have another feud, and France seems to be in the middle of both of these feuds. France is a neighbor to a territory that historically has been known as Prussia. And it is going to become a nation uh, very recently, just 44 uh, years before World War I, and it's called Germany. And these two do not like one another. They've been in a lot of fist fights, and they have a lot of uh, bloody noses and a lot of black eyes because of it, and they remember them all. And so their most recent uh, fracas was back in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War. And that is going to lay the seed and plant the seeds for what we're going to see in World War I. So sorry to do all that to you. For those of you that could care less about things like that, I'm trying to keep this as applicable and as uh, just sort of grippable as possible for your understanding. So you don't need to remember something like the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 to be able to understand what is taking place. However, I did mention it for all of you that are fascinated with things like that. This particular message is going to be called The Insecurity of William. Uh, in, I don't know if it was the last message, I described a character named Kaiser Wilhelm, and technically I've even been told that I mispronounced that, even though I get the Wil uh, maybe correct, right? It's, I, I think I've already warned you that my pronunciation of German and French, and of course if I try and say something in a British accent, it's going to bomb too. And I got a ton of that. The Americans don't get into this whole thing for a long time, and so until I can't use my uh, good old-fashioned American accent uh, for a long time now. When you start asking me about American names, I'm going to be really good at that. Uh, but the insecurity of William. So in this message, I'm going to take the Kaiser Wilhelm II. So he's like an emperor. He's a king. The, the word Kaiser, as I said before, comes from Caesar. And so this is in the age of kings. Most of the nations of Europe are still under the rulership, and active rulership. It's not just the, uh, you know, the fact that, oh, we have a king, but actually our parliament runs things. This is like, in some of these countries, the king actually is the king still. It's a weird thing. It's an old world system that is going to be coming into a new world, and that's World War I. It's the transition of old into new. And so in this message, I'm going to call Wilhelm William, and maybe I'm doing that just for my sake, okay? But also for some of you who might struggle with it too. It's like, who's that guy again? 
William's just a lot easier for us to wrap our, name, our, our mind around. <clears throat> so we're going to go back uh, to 1910. World War I is going to start in August of 1914. Okay, so that gives you sort of a, a time frame here of where we're at. And there is a momentous watershed occasion that is going to take place on earth. And that is a major leader in the world at this time is going to pass away. And that is the funeral of Edward VII, is May 20th, 1910. And it is a August amazing, beautiful, noble, royal occasion. And you have dignitaries, royals from all over the world that are going to come to this. And there's ne up to that point, there had never been anything like it. And since then, there has never been anything like it. I mean, it is a once in a world history sort of event uh, because of the nature of things and who this man was at the time. And so now most of us ironically have some of us have never even heard of Edward VII. And that's what's intriguing to me too, is the significance of this man's life. And because what followed is World War I, you immediately erase certain things and you forget them. Sort of like Will William II or Wilhelm II, most of us have never heard of him. Why? Because of Hitler. It's like Hitler overwrote William II. William II is sort of the bad guy of World War I. But because the bad guy in World War II is so superior in his badness, we actually forget William II. Isn't that interesting? It's like William II, who's that? Edward VII, who's that? They're actually very, very important characters in history, but because of what took place after them, it's sort of like they got lost in the bomb blasts. So the funeral of Edward VII, I think I even have a picture of it. Uh, isn't that cool? This is right at the time when photography is coming in. So you actually can see pictures of some of these characters back in this time. Almost everything, like if you ever try and get video of World War I, it's not that attractive. And so I think Peter Jackson went through and actually colored it and made it move in the same uh, meter, the way that a human body would move. And it's actually rather fascinating to see. But uh, that's, it's, it's a grand event. So uh, there's a book called The Guns of August, which uh, is about the outbreak of World War I by a lady named Barbara Tuckman. This lady, when you read Barbara Tuckman's writings, it moves you. She is so poetic in how she describes things. And so her descriptions, I have multiple in this message uh, that I think you guys will enjoy. So she's describing this, this funeral. So gorgeous was the spectacle on the May morning of 1910 when nine kings rode in the funeral of Edward VII of England that the crowd waiting in hushed and black-clad awe could not keep back gasps of admiration. In scarlet and blue and green and purple, three by three the sovereigns rode through the palace gates with plumed helmets, gold braid, crimson sashes, and jeweled orders flashing in the sun. After them came five heirs apparent, 40 more imperial or royal highnesses, seven queens, and a scattering of special ambassadors from uncrowned countries. Together they represented 70 nations in the greatest assemblage of royalty and rank ever gathered in one place, and of its kind, the last. The muffled tongue of Big Ben told nine by the clock as the cortege left the palace, but on history's clock it was sunset and the sun of the old world was setting in a dying blaze of splendor, never to be seen again. I, I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm like moved even by how she, she writes it, it's beautiful. So here's a painting of that grand event, the, the nine sovereigns, the nine kings that are actually at this funeral. I mean, again, by the end of World War I, this is all gonna change. This idea of kings uh, is going to like melt away. And so we have men in this very scene that are leading their countries that will not even be alive by the end of you know, the next eight years. Things are gonna so dramatically change in the world and no one really can see that coming. So here's an actual photo of the nine kings. Isn't that cool? I mean, just to look this up and then to, to study it, just it makes you feel like you're entering history because we don't have a lot of photos before this time. 
And so this is one of those rare events, and so they actually posed for a photo, and there's, there's a lot of key characters in that scene that you wouldn't know yet, and the top row in the back, fourth from the left, or third from the right, whoever you want to say it, he has the curling mustache, is a guy named William II. Okay, just to sort of give you a quick introduction there, visually. So before we get to William II, I need to introduce you to the man whose funeral this is. His name is Edward. He's known as Edward VII. Wouldn't it be weird to be known by a name like that, Edward VII? I mean, just call me Edward, or just call me Eddie. Uh, instead, it's like Edward VII. He was known, his, whether or not, you, you wouldn't call him, hey, uncle of Europe. He was known as the uncle of Europe. And there's reason for that. Uh, if you sort of know who he's related to, so I'll, I'll go through the quick list here. William II, or up there on the screen it says Wilhelm, Wilhelm uh, II, who's the emperor of Germany, who's sort of in our title of this one, the insecurity of William, that's his nephew. Isn't that interesting? That's his nephew. So Nicholas II, who is another huge player, is in control of Russia right now and is a king over Russia, is his nephew through his wife. In other words, his, it's his wife's nephew, and so as a result, it's his nephew. Alex, or Alexandra, the Tsarina, the wife of Nicholas II, is his niece, okay? And those two are married. Ina, the queen of Spain, is his niece. Marie, soon to be queen of Romania, his niece. Maud, queen of Norway, his daughter. And Frederick VIII, king of Denmark, his brother-in-law. Talk about knowing everyone. This guy's related to everyone, which actually plays a significant role in keeping peace because there is a relationship, even if you don't like this guy, he, you know, he's over the most powerful nation in the world, and so you show a respect for him. That's your uncle, and he can play that card at times too, and he can call on family loyalties. So there's our guy. He's also known as the peacemaker of Europe. And so I'm, I have a description off to the right of his face. Uh, it says, his life had been like the pin in a grenade. Once removed, an explosion was imminent. When you remove the father of, or the, the uncle of Europe and you remove the peacemaker of Europe, it's like, eesh, we just lost something. You don't realize what, that you have it when you have it. But when it was removed, suddenly instability reigned. And everyone was vying for position. Everyone was vying for control. So Reginald Brett, who's also known as Lord Escher, in his diary entry on May 20th, this is the same day, the, the funeral, he, and he's referring to the funeral of Edward VII, there never was such a breakup. All the old buoys which have marked the channel of our lives seem to have been swept away in the death of Edward VII. So introducing the insecure emperor of Germany. His name is William II. Now, it's, it's awkward because we're dealing with a king, and you know, for Eric to go out of his way to call him insecure seems a little preposterous, right? I mean, Eric, how do you know anything about this guy? What's amazing about studying history is that you can actually dig into information that you could otherwise never access. Like if this, if this guy's alive right now, right, we have realpolitik and we have this whole cloak of who he is, right? But this man in history goes down because we have all the other people he's related to that have spent a lot of intimate time with him that know him extremely well. Think about that. We have a lot of access to a lot of good data here. And when you put that data together, you come up with the conclusion, this guy was very insecure. And I actually, my heart goes out to him. It really does. I feel for the guy. He had, I mean, one of his arms didn't quite work right, and, you know, he needed help doing simple chat tasks at times. You could just sort of imagine how that could cause, you know, a complex, right? But there's other complexes this guy has. He was described as conniving, scheming, indiscreet, insecure, poorly mannered, poorly educated, easily offended and desirous to find respect at all costs. None of the other kings or queens liked him. In fact, they mocked and ridiculed him behind his back and sometimes even to his face. 
Now, I just want you to stick yourself in William's shoes. And you're in charge of a country that is new on the scene. Germany has not been around for 44 years. These other countries have been around since, you know, anyone can remember. I mean, we're talking Roman Empire days. And so it's like, you're the new guy on the block, and you want to be treated with respect. Germany actually has something going for it. Germany is flourishing. Germany is growing faster. Its birth rate is higher than anyone else's. Its technological developments faster than anyone else's. Its cultural developments in the arts and in the sciences are exploding. They have the philosophers. They have the brains here. And guess who's leading them? Kaiser Wilhelm. Or William is what we're calling him, right? And wouldn't you want a little respect for that? Instead, he gets the sneers from everyone. Everyone mocks him and makes fun of him. And so he wants to be recognized. He wants to have his accomplishments, what he's doing, what his nation is doing, at least seen as, you know, it's, it's at least one of the elite nations here. You have to acknowledge that. So Barbara Tuckman says, envy of the older nations nod at him. He complained to Theodore Roosevelt that the English nobility on continental tours never visited Berlin, Berlin being the capital of his country, Germany, but always went to Paris. Why would they go to Paris? They should come to Berlin. He felt unappreciated. So there's a, a whole bunch of baits as you listen to this to recognize yourself in this. It is really interesting the human propensity to feel this, to feel overlooked, to feel underappreciated. And the response that William has, I'm just going to prep you, is not good. And it's going to lead to World War I, which is why I'm giving this little segment. In other words, to let you understand how things work, even in the hearts and minds of men. If, if William is just you or me, then his insecurity may not lead to a world war, but he happens to be in the position of a monarch as a king. So here's Alexander III, look at that guy, uh, the Tsar of Russia before Nicholas II. So this is like Nicholas II's dad, okay? And when he did not like William II, and so when he talked with William, he would not look him in the face. He would turn his back to him and sneer at him over his shoulder. And as one of the quotes that he has given is, William is a poorly educated boy. That was his statement. That's like the greatest put down you could give to a Kaiser of what he would consider the most well-educated country. Okay, so this is like the ultimate slap in the face. He will not even look him in the face because he, is, he looks at William as so far beneath him. Could you imagine how that would make you feel if you're the king of what you consider to be the greatest country in the world? And that king won't even look you in the face. He sneers at you over his shoulder and calls you poorly educated? Okay, I don't know if you're sort of seeing the spiked punch here. So I'm going to go back in my own history and remember Marco. Okay, I had a, a summer, uh, and by the way, that is a cloaked uh, name, uh, but I had a summer with a uh, little boy named Marco. And it's interesting, which is why I think I have an extra sensitivity to William, because I see something. I recognize that God's perspective and his desire to, to help little William is real. And yet little William has to receive the help because when you go through trauma in your life, it has a tendency to uh, mess with you. So uh, let me share with you what happened in my summer uh, with Marco. His parents' marriage was falling apart. His world was crumbling around him. He was extra small for his age. Okay, can you feel, feel all this? He was constantly badgered by his schoolmates and made fun of, and now he was spending the summer with me. Okay, doesn't, I don't know how many of you want to sign up for a summer with Marco, right? You have one who is insecure and who is always hearing about his failings and whose world is falling apart. And so what is the response in a typical little guy like that? He never stopped talking all summer. Even when we went to the movies, he was yammering during the movie. 
In fact, when he talked, he always talked about how amazing he was. Always. I was always hearing about the virtues of Marco. He talked of his talents, his smarts, his accomplishments. And then, to contrast that, he criticized me at every turn, finding fault in everything I did. It was the most irritating summer of my life. Now, I have a totally different perspective on that than I, you know, now than I did then. You know, when I'm just a young teenager, this is like hell on earth to spend time with Marco. However, I have a deep well of compassion now that I have perspective, and of course I've been transformed by Christ. But at the same time, you can understand how the other royals would feel when they were around Marco of 1910 or all the way to 1914. That's William II right there. This is him. He feels this, and he's always talking up his strengths, and he's criticized. When he gets together with you and you're another king, he's going to tell you all your faults, and then he's going to brag about Germany. And then he's going to wonder why no one likes him. <laughs> the razor's edge of decision, which way will we go? What William II has gone through up to this point is actually not unusual. I think there's a deep desire inside of each of us as humans to be appreciated, to be understood, to be thought well of, to be respected. And so when things that we work hard at and we are even good at are not seen but overlooked and then our fault is noticed, what do we have a tendency to do? We have a tendency to go through a certain inner convulsion and we want to prove that we are better than what they think. And this is a human thing, it just is. And one of the most important things in my life, as I stepped into ministry, I began to realize that I received a tremendous amount of criticism. See, when I was growing up, I would be criticized every now and then. You know, yes, it happened. But I also got a lot of pats on the back. And a lot of people proud of me, because I was doing things that made sense to the world. But when I started following Jesus, everything sort of went cattywampus, and I wasn't really prepared for the high levels, the high volume of criticism in my life. And it was very difficult for me. And I spent a lot of time stewing. It's like, God, I want you to do this in my life so that you can prove to them that what I did was a good decision. I need you to prove to them and shut them up. This was, it was a very real, almost like volcanic type of thing, emotion that I was feeling where I wanted God to prove, I wanted that moment, you know, where I'm standing on the, uh, the pedestal with the gold medal hanging around my neck and they're playing the national anthem, and then I can look out at that one person who said, you'll never amount to anything, or what you're doing is wrong, and I could look at them and smirk. It's like, oh, that would feel good. However, that's the wrong direction to go. You see, our soul is vulnerable, and I don't remember which message it was, I was maybe it was the last one, I was talking about the razor's edge, and how we handle the razor's edge, we can tip in the wrong way and go towards cynicism when our earthly authority is unhealthy. And we can then begin to question everything. We, we question God, we question his word because our earthly authority was off uh, kilter. The same is true when the world around us finds fault with us instead of gives us plaudits that we crave that we could easily do something, and I'm going to call it in this message becoming the victim. And when you become the victim, it's a dangerous path to go down. So the razor's edge of decision, which way will we go? So I'll give you two different things. Disillusionment is what we talked about in the last message. Do we go the cynic's route or do we go the believer's route? You see, as Christians, when you face a challenge or something that seems to say, oh, look, God forgot you, or look, God has failed you, it's a very critical moment for you that you freshly apply yourself to the truth and say, but I believe my God. But I believe my God. And even when, remember Job and his trial, it's like even his wife is saying, curse God and die. And instead he falls down on his knees and worships God. That is what changes the world. And yet we're all susceptible to going in the wrong direction and listen to, listening to Job's wife. Then when it comes to what William II is going through in this message, 
this voice of diminishment, do we go the victim's route or do we go the victor's route? We have a victim mentality that has strangled so many people that I know. I mean, it is a very, very, it's, it starts with self-pity. And you nurse your self-pity and you talk to yourself about the fact that they're wrong, that you, you deserve something more. Can you believe they did that to you? And that victim mentality cripples your spiritual life almost faster than anything else. I would say it's one of the most deadly things you could ever get close to. What William is messing with here is not just going to destroy his life, it's going to destroy his country. It's not just going to destroy his country, it's going to destroy the world. World War I is a direct result of William's insecurity. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing statement? So introducing the encircled emperor of Germany. So this term encircled is a very, very big deal to a German. For those of you that did not grow up in this time and you don't understand what the Germans were going through, look, they're, they're building up military power and everyone around them hates them. They don't just hate their emperor, they hate them. And they feel it. It's not just William that has an insecurity complex, it's the entire German nation. And what do they feel? They feel like everyone's out to get them. They feel, and for good reason, that they're surrounded. Why? Because they are. Their nation is surrounded. That's just the nature of where, they're, where they are, where they're located geographically. So we're looking at a map of Europe in 1914, and you're going to notice Germany is the topmost red country. It looks sort of like the head of a horse. Okay, you have to sort of, I don't know uh, if that's clear enough for you on, on this screen that I'm looking at, but you'll notice the three reddish, purplish countries up there are all going to be what's going to be called the central powers. They were in agreement, even before World War I, that if any of the other ones of them were ever attacked or ever under duress, then the other ones would come to their aid in war. Okay, and then you're going to see the blue countries they were also in league. They were an entente is what it's called. It's like they have a treaty together that if one of them is attacked, the other ones will come to their aid. The, uh, the, the treaty between the United Kingdom and France was more of a handshake sort of deal, which is one of the delicate points at the very beginning of this, this war uh, when France is attacked of if the United Kingdom will come in. But you see all those dots around those are going to be the key countries involved in this conflict. But Germany, you can sort of see it. I mean, look, at, there's a lot of hostility all around it, okay? If, you know, if Russia chooses to come against them and then France is like, hey, yeah, let's get our piece of this too, and the United Kingdom, none of them really are happy with Germany at this point, right? It's like they could all have Germany for dinner. And so you can understand how they could feel a little insecure in their position. So, oops, sorry guys. So, I, I, I'm not going to try and speak the, the German up there. If I do, someone in here is going to speak it better than, uh, you know, someone's going to be fluent in German. Or someone listen to the podcast and then I'll get some kind of note about it. But I do have it up there for those of you that do speak German. And you can say it to yourself, mutter it to yourself. Uh, but it means encirclement. And Germany was always fearful of encirclement. Uh, like even Will William's dad on his deathbed is talking about a war on two fronts as is his final words. It's like, what was his final words? Oh, he was talking about, you know, defending Germany on two fronts, which means, you know, Russia and France on the other side. This is like all they think about in this country. So here Barbara Tuckman said, he had come to bury Edward his bane. So now we're talking about William showing up at Edward VII's funeral. And he has come to bury Edward his bane, which means the pain in his side. As William conceived it of, Ger oh, Edward, the arch plotter, as William conceived it of Germany's encirclement. He was convinced that Edward was the plotter, the mastermind behind encircling Germany. Edward, his mother's brother, whom he, he could neither bully nor impress, whose fat figure cast a shadow between Germany and the son. He was so happy to have this guy out. He can't act like he's happy, right, at the funeral, but he's happy. 
So here's William II. This is what he said of Edward. <clears throat> he, Edward VII, is Satan. You cannot imagine what a Satan he is. How would you like to have a quote like that lingering around? You see, William was not very discreet. You guys know what discreet means? You know, where you watch your words and you don't say them when you shouldn't and you don't say certain things like that. Uh, that isn't going to breed really healthy uh, international relations, right? With your uncle, nonetheless. So Barbara Tuckman says, happily, the encircler, he's speak, speaking of Edward, he's known as the encircler to, uh, to William, was now dead and replaced by George, who the Kaiser told Theodore Roosevelt a few days before the funeral was a very nice boy of 45, six years younger than the Kaiser. The Kaiser liked having a younger guy as the king as opposed to his uncle, and he sort of felt like he had more power then. He is a thorough Englishman and hates all foreigners, but I do not mind that as long as he does not hate Germans more than the other foreigners. This is a fascinating little piece too. Alongside George, this is as they're riding in amongst the nine sovereigns. Alongside George, William now rode confidently, saluting as he passed the regimental colors of the first royal dragoons of which he was honorary colonel. Once he had distributed photographs of himself wearing their uniform with the Delphic inscription written above his signature, I bide my time. Today his time had come. He was supreme in Europe. So he had passed around this photograph with this Delphic meaning like hidden, like mysterious, what does that mean? This Delphic inscription saying, I bide my time. And that's exactly what he was doing. He's waiting for the point when he's going to take his premier position in Europe. Europe should belong to the German. That's the way the Germans think. And all of this encirclement, we're going to stop this. And we're going to fight. This is their mentality. Everyone else is like, hey, could we just have peace? We are going to fight for what is ours. And so you see this mentality, which is springing forth from a tremendous insecurity and a lack of respect. They want to gain that respect. So introducing the victim emperor of Germany. There's our guy again, by the way. I, I keep sticking his face up there, just in case you forgot uh, from the last time I stuck his face up there. William II. So this is a made-up quote, but this, in a, sorts, in, a, in, a, in a sort of way, summarizes everything I've studied about the guy. And that is, if everyone is out to get me, I'm going to get them first. Now here's a real quote. This is something he spoke, and I'm going to say indiscreetly to the king of Italy, because now we hear it. So the king of Italy is like, yeah, Kaiser Wilhelm said this to me. All the long years of my reign, my colleagues, the monarchs of Europe, have paid no attention to what I have to say. Soon, with my great navy to endorse my words, they will be more respectful. See, I don't know if you guys can feel World War I about to take place here, because we have a tinderbox right in the middle of it. We have someone who's very insecure. But there's more to it than that. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, the same sentiments ran through William's whole nation which suffered, like their emperor, from a terrible need for recognition. Pulsing with energy and ambition, conscious of strength, they felt entitled to rule and cheated that the world did not acknowledge their title. They felt entitled to rule, but the world doesn't seem to acknowledge that, that they are supreme, that they are superior, that they are a greater race. I don't know if you guys could fast forward to World War II real quick, and what you're gonna have is a strange sense of awe that Hitler was not inventing something. He was bringing something back. This has been the kernel of the problem the entire time. But we forget William II because Hitler was so utterly, uh, I mean, repulsive, so far beyond William. You feel bad for William. I mean, you look at William and you actually sort of have pity. It's hard to have the pity for uh, Hitler. The German doctrines of aggression, this is the way the Germans looked at it. It was necessity. We have no choice. They felt that it was necessity that they fight. They felt it was necessity that they deal with their problems. So the first problem, necessity number one, we are encircled. We have no choice. Necessity number two, we are disrespected and can't share in the esteem of the elite. We must prove our worth. It's a necessity. You have to prove your worth. I don't know where they got that from, but that's, that's their conclusion. 
Necessity number three, we are the most brilliant people. We must expand our territories. This territory should not be uh, lived in and ruled over by ignorant people. It should be ruled over by the most brilliant. Those which are superior should take command. Okay, it's the survival of the fittest. And as a result, the evolutionary chain of events, which was a huge deal in even this time, is the doctrine of evolution and how it was training this people group to think that if they truly are the most fit, if they truly are the most brilliant, if their race truly is the most pure, then it should rule. So, Friedrich von Bernardi, boy, did I butcher his name, uh, a German general, this is what he said, and this is one of the key leaders, this is the mindset behind the military of the Germans at this time. War is a biological necessity. Nations must progress or decay. There can be no standing still, and Germany must choose world power or downfall. Could you imagine if you believed that? It's like either we're going to fall to pieces and fall apart or we're going to go after world power. There's only two options here. <laughs> you can't just sort of live in your little territory and be cheerful and content. You have to either fall apart or conquer everything. Whew. It is incumbent on us to act on the offensive and strike the first blow. So since we are going to have to go after world power, we might as well strike the first blow instead of be on the defensive. Let's take it. France must be so completely crushed that she can never cross our path again. She must be annihilated once and for all as a great power. Okay, so I, I don't know if you can feel this. Now, for some of you, you don't really know Europe. You don't understand World War I, and that's fine. Those pieces will come together. But maybe you can understand at least that insecurity and that attitude. You see, you could take that, that attitude, and stick it into your life, too. And you could think, unless I accomplish this, I'm worthless. I have to do this or die. And people that live with these extremes that end up stomping on other people around them to gain what they believe is a necessity, it creates havoc in the world. Well, imagine if you stick that on the world stage and make it a nation that behaves that way. So the battle over France. It's interesting because with this insecurity, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm, or William II, as we're calling him in this uh, one, has a capital city, Berlin. And no one wants to come and see Berlin, right? Everyone wants to go to what they call the beautiful city, Paris. Oh, you know how that rankles his spirit? Why is that called the beautiful city? And everyone could say, because it's beautiful. Uh, and Berlin is really not. Uh, but Paris is beautiful. It's, and so the artistry, the, the romance of it. Berlin just doesn't have the same feel to it. And William II feels this. And so he wants France. He wants to conquer France. He wants to be respected by France. It's just, it's the same thing. All, all the Germans sort of feel, it's like in the German blood almost. By the way, I'm German, okay? And I can't say that I can relate to any of this, but part of it is because it was the culture. It was the zeitgeist of the era. And so when you grow up in it, just like political correctness today, you adopt things. Like political correctness today is so absurd. And the way people think, I'm hoping that in the upcoming years, people look back and go, oh, I, I had nothing to do with that. I... I didn't think that. I mean, there, that was, there, people had that thought, but I didn't have that thought. I can just sort of see that because it's so ludicrous what some people will say. It's like, first of all, I want on Facebook, there's 54 genders. Or, there was. That was even like three or four years ago. I think they've added a few. But okay, are, are you serious? Uh, and all of these things that everyone just nods along and says, oh, absolutely, and I support that. Some of the things that we're supporting are so ludicrous, but that's the exact same way. If you were German back then, it's part of the zeitgeist. That means the spirit of the age. And as a result, people nod along, and if you want to get along with everyone, you start to adopt it too. It's, it's the principle of survival. So everyone wants France. 
So we're going to uh, Barbara Tuckman's statement. We're going back to the funeral uh, of Edward VII. At the funeral of Edward VII, William could not resist the opportunity for fresh scheming. At a dinner given by King George, who's the new king of England, that night at Buckingham Palace for the 70 royal mourners and special ambassadors, William buttonholed the foreign minister of France and proposed to him that in the event Germany should find herself opposed to England in a conflict, France should side with Germany which is quite a hilarious thing to, uh, to come to France as Germany and say, hey, would you like to partner with us in this? And this didn't quite work out the way that uh, William was hoping, but even at, he's in England. He's at the funeral of the King of England and he's scheming against England. You can just imagine how well this went over with the English because they found out about it. The longing of William II, this is his great dream. He wanted to enter Paris as a king. Now, that's probably not your dream, right? Your dream is not to you know, have some big royal parade and enter into Paris. He really wanted to see it. It's like this little kid side of him that really wanted to see the beautiful city. Even though it rankled him that you know, no one considered Berlin the beautiful city and Paris was the beautiful city, he really wanted to enter it as a king. Now, I know that Paris is not a great picture of the kingdom of God, okay? But let's imagine that we use the term beautiful city, capitalize the B, capitalize the C, and we're talking about the new Jerusalem, okay? We're talking about the city of our God. And imagine that you're sort of like William. You'd like to see that city too. You'd like to enter that city. I don't blame you. I would wanna go, I wanna go to heaven. I wanna spend eternity with Jesus Christ. However, everything that William is gonna do is gonna be wrong. If you really wanna get into that city, you're doing it the wrong way, William. And there's gonna be a contrast here, because I'm gonna show you a king that also wants to go to that city, and his name is Edward VII. Now remember, there's a long history of feuding and hatred between France and England and France and Germany. And both of those kings, the German king and the British king, both would love to go to Paris. They don't get a lot of chances to hang out in Paris, why? Well, because they hate each other, right? And so you don't just hang out uh, with each other. And so Edward would like to see it too. And so that's gonna become a very unique uh, subline in this. So here's Barbara Tuckman. William derived balm from ceremonial entries into foreign capitals. And the one above all he wished to visit was Paris. Paris, the unattainable. He had been everywhere, even to Jerusalem, where the Jaffa Gate had to be cut to permit his entry on horseback. By the way, that didn't go over very well with anyone there that treated it as the holy city. And he had to have it cut so he could come in in his royal entry. That didn't translate well either. But Paris, the center of all that was beautiful, all that was desirable, all that Berlin was not, remained closed to him. Barbara Tuckman continues, he wanted to receive the acclaim of Parisians, those of Paris, and be awarded the grand cordon of the Legion of Honor, and twice let the imperial wish be known to the French. You know, he'd hinted, he'd drop it in conversations. No invitation ever came. It's tough when that's your life ambition. I want to enter Paris as a king. So if they're not going to invite me, I'm going to have to come up with another way to get in there as a king. Instead, Edward VII pulls off the impossible. Now, if you had asked back you know, in the early 1900s, you have asked William and say, do you think it's possible that Edward, who also wants to get to Paris, could ever have a chance to go to Paris? <laughs> no way. The French hate the English. And that was very present tense in early 1900s. And so, but Edward... Edward is a peacemaker. Edward is a very different sort. Now, I'm, I don't want to brag about Edward. Edward VII had his issues too, right? Uh, however, he had something going for him that is a great parallel when we create a kingdom parallel. And that is that he is a people lover. He cares about you. He genuinely does. He likes people. And he likes the French. Yeah, you know, they don't like him. But he understands that. He says, we've had bad blood between us for centuries. What if I just come in and show them that I like them? What would happen? This is, what they, this is what he does. He humbles himself. He's the king, the most powerful man in the world, arguably. And he is going to come 
humble himself and come into France and pay it compliments and express, in a sense, his sorrow for the way that they've been treated. So instead, Edward VII pulls off the, the impossible. He gets to enter the beautiful city. That's how frustrating this would be to William. In 1903, Edward went to Paris, disregarding advice that an official state visit would find a cold welcome. On his arrival, the crowds were sullen and silent, except for a few taunting cries of, long live the Boers, which the king ignored. To a worried aide who muttered, the French don't like us, he replied, why should they? Isn't that an insightful statement? Why should they? We've given them nothing to like. We've always given them the cold shoulder too. So what does he do? He gives them a winsome warmth. And in all of history, this has to rank up there as one of the most incredible, extraordinary turns of event, especially if you know the long feud between Britain and France, is Edward VII goes in and spends some days just basically washing the feet of a nation. And when he leaves and, con let's say, and continued bowing and smiling from his carriage, and then listen to this. When Edward left, now I just skipped a whole bunch, I know. The crowds now shouted, long live the king. They want Edward to live long? Why would they want Edward to live long? Something has transformed. I think, I, yeah, I have a Belgian diplomat that said, seldom has such a complete change of attitude been seen as that which has taken place in this country. Edward has won the hearts of all the French. Whoa! How did that just happen? Now just imagine how William's feeling about it, okay? Because that's impossible. I've always wanted that. What is the difference between Edward VII and William II? So the ivory wall. I use this illustration a lot, and it's a very, very important one for me to really grip what it means to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So let's imagine we have an ivory wall in front of us. I mean, multiple feet thick, okay? And on the other side is the beautiful city, okay? The kingdom of heaven, the new Jerusalem. You want in. You want to participate in that. And so you're thinking, I need to get past this wall. And so you try and climb it. Well, that's going to be hard. First of all, it's ivory, and it's not the easiest thing to climb. But secondly, it goes 10 million miles high. Okay, that does pose a problem. And so, okay, I'll go around the right side. Well, you know, that, that's a good idea, good thinking, but however, it goes 10 million miles to the right. Okay, I'll go around the left. Uh, sorry, it goes 10 million miles to the left. Well, then I'll dig underneath it. I like your aggressiveness. It's really good. However, this, this ivory wall goes 10 million miles into the dirt. I know you're thinking, boy, that's a lot of dirt. In other words, it's an impossible task to get through this wall. And yet, your desire is to get to the other side. But did I mention there is one way to get through? Right where the dirt meets the ivory wall, there's this little hole that's just big enough that if you strip your life of everything and give it all up and get on your face, you can wiggle in. You see, the entry into this kingdom is humility. That is the only way in. And if you try in any other way to access that grand environment, it's forbidden. And so what we see in this story is a profound picture of that without trying to mm, give too many plaudits to Edward VII, because I'm sure if you guys start digging into his life, you'll be like, well, Eric, I mean, are you saying he's a picture of the Christian life that's humble? I'm saying he has something that is demonstrated in contrast with William II in this story that is quite profound. The key to the beautiful city, it's humility. Edward II is going to use it. And as a result, he's going to have access to the French. And get this, in World War I and in World War II, those two wars will start with the French and the British allies. Now, World War II, they're going to fall to pieces, and that's a whole different story. Uh, however, they are going to be an ally of their ancient enemy, the, the British. That's, that's amazing. Why? Because of Edward. That's a remarkable statement. The key to being repulsed by the beautiful city. I can give it to you guys. It's, it's pretty easy, and you'll always be kept out of, the, out of the beautiful city if you use it. It's pride. Barbara Tuckman says it this way. He could enter Alsace and make speeches glorifying, this is speaking of William, 
William could enter Alsace and make speeches glorifying the victory of 1870. He could lead parades through Metz and Lorraine, but it is perhaps the saddest story of the fate of kings that William lived to be 82 and died without seeing Paris. Isn't that an amazing statement? I mean, I feel for the guy, but he was going about it the wrong way. The making of the Hun. I don't know if you've ever heard the term Hun, but in both World War I and World War II, the Germans are going to be known as the Hun, which, by the way, is not a compliment. In history, Attila the Hun, he was the, sort of the king of the Hun, they were the most gruesome, most barbaric of warriors. Oh, they were good warriors. However, they were barbaric. And where does this come from? Well, this comes from William II. So I'm going to say it this way. And disrespect begat insecurity, and insecurity begat brutality. If you study the Germans in World War I and World War II, you're going to see a brutality that is shocking in a civilized nation. Germany would have considered itself a Christian nation. 80% Protestant Christian? I mean, what, what's going on here, guys? What is this? Brutality? Brutality at such a high level. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, Germany might have had an English entente, that's a treaty with Great Britain, for herself, had not her leaders, suspecting English motives, rebuffed the overtures of the current colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, in 1899 and again in 1901. Neither the leadership of Germany nor William himself was quite sure what they suspected England of, but they were certain it was something perfidious, something evil. The Kaiser always wanted an agreement with England if he could get one without seeming to want it. See, he wanted to work with England, but he didn't want to act like he wanted to. And as a result, their pride, even when England came to them and said, we'd like to enter into a compact with you, so we have a treaty with you to protect one another, they knew England was up to something. They're trying to encircle us. And so as a result, they repulsed it. Here's William II. This is his speech to his troops as they headed off in 1900 to China for the Boxer Rebellion. Should you encounter the enemy... He will be defeated. No quarter will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited. Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under their king Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend. May the name German be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever again dare to look cross-eyed at a German. And thanks to that wonderful speech, the Germans will be known as the Hun in both World War I and World War II, which by the way, for the Western, rest of the Western world, that is not a compliment. Napoleon said Prussia, which we know now as Germany in this story, was hatched from a cannonball. Of course, I always look at Napoleon and wonder if he was hatched from a cannonball. So it's like the pot uh, ke calling the kettle black. Uh, uh, George, George is, uh, he's the British, uh, he's the French Prime Minister Clemenceau. I'm, I'm gonna mispronounce these names. But uh, he said, the German lust for power has fixed as its policy the extermination of France. The voice feeding the victim. What, how did William get his thinking? Listen to these four German philosophers that would have had a great impact upon Germany in this time. So, uh, Johann, oh boy, wait till I butcher these uh, for you guys. Johann Gottlieb Fichte, uh, German philosopher. The German this is, listen to this quote. The German people are chosen by providence to occupy the supreme place in the history of the universe. Okay, that's not going to help. Uh, how about this? George Wilhelm, or Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, German philosopher. He said this, the Germans will lead the world to a glorious destiny of compulsory kultur. That's culture, as we would understand it, the way a culture works. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher. Supermen, Germans, are above ordinary controls. Heinrich von Treitsky, political writer. The increase of power is the highest moral duty of the state of the whole German people. The increase of power is the highest moral duty. So you recognize what is hatching here. What is hatching is the beginnings of a world war. What's underneath the surface? The victim inevitably is nursing a deep and boiling resentment. So this is uh, Barbara Tuckman talking about William. 
at the funeral of Edward VII, laying his wreath of purple and white flowers on the coffin, he knelt with King George in silent prayer and on rising grasped his cousin's hand in a manly and sympathetic handshake. The gesture widely reported caused much favorable comment. Publicly, his performance was perfect. And yet, underneath, there is a resentment. There is an insecurity. There is a feeling of inferiority. There's a victim mentality. I'm encircled. And as a result, he's a bomb waiting to go off. If you identify with William's insecurity, here's my encouragement to all of us. There is a better way to respond than starting a world war. This is a summary from uh, Friedrich von Bernardi, the German general from earlier. It is incumbent on us to act on the offensive and to strike the first blow. That is going to be William II's attitude in World War I. It is incumbent, it is imperative that we strike the first blow and that is going to cost Germany greatly. It'll always cost you too. Have you ever, you know, if you know, like you're in a relationship and you know someone's about to break up with you, what do you do? You strike the first blow. It's like, oh, I just wanted you to know, before you talk, before you say anything, I'm breaking up with you. And they were like, I was just going to ask if you wanted to go out to dinner tonight. And you're like, oh, uh. in other words, it's our vulnerability, our insecurity that causes us to try and hit first before we are wounded. And I just want you to know that that is the opposite of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven functions very differently than we're going to watch William II function in this story. Isaiah 53, 7, let me show you a leader of leaders. Let me show you a king of kings. Let me show you the behavior of heaven itself. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He could have been spoken at and sneered over the shoulder of the Russian czar, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Look at these scriptures. And this is in the New Testament now, Matthew 27, 12. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Mark 14, 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Then Mark 15, 5, but Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Then he questioned him, this is Luke 23, 9. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2, 23. And of course, the picture of all pictures is Christ in his attitude at the cross, where here he is, the king of all kings. If there's anyone deserving of respect, if there's anyone deserving of praise and adoration and worship, the praise and adoration and worship that William II feels that he deserves, if there was anyone that is deserving of it, his name is Jesus Christ. And yet, he humbled himself. And in that humbling, he is actually going to change history. You see, when we rise up in arrogance, when we rise up in pride, we destroy. But when we follow a Christ pattern, I don't know what is taking place in your life, and I don't know what voices may be speaking to you, but there is a voice of diminishment that has accompanied my life for decades. Shut up, Ludi. What you're doing is accomplishing nothing. It's a pretty good argument, too, because since I started in ministry, the world has gotten worse. Shut up. Give up. You've expired. You're way past your prime. No one actually wants to hear you. I hear these things all the time. And I could, on that razor's edge, fall into the direction of the victim. God, I was just trying to, just trying to serve, doing my best. And all I've been fed is diminishment and discouragement and hardship. And my spiritual life will dry up as quickly as I do it. But if I take that and I leverage it in my soul unto a greater dependence on my God and say, you felt this, didn't you? Lord, thank you that I could share in the fellowship of your suffering. I do this for you, not for the applause of men. And Lord, the results are up to you. And I know that you do not waste faith and obedience and so as I give myself to you, I trust that you will kindle upon it and use it in a mighty way. Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Listen to this. What is the result of this? What is the result of humility? Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. You see, when you're a little Germany and you're feeling insecure and you want to expand your boundaries, you want to increase your impact on the world, Jesus Christ is giving us a pattern. Humble yourself. Become a servant. Visit Paris with winsome warmth and humility, William, and you'll find the response and the receptivity will be completely different than when you threaten them with bombs. I mean, that, that, what, what are you expecting? And yet so many of us approach our life in the wrong, inverted fashion. Let's adopt the Jesus model. Father, we ask for your grace in this. We ask that you would touch that one part of us that is vulnerable to the William insecurity, the William diminishment. And Lord, I pray that the victim mentality would not be able to latch onto us, but that we would find ourselves and identify ourselves in the victor, Jesus Christ, and that we would learn humility, that the Holy Spirit would work in us to bring us low so that we could share in your high work. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.